breaking a leg. Breaking a Leg, episode 11. And I'm very lucky to have a special guest with me today. This is my podcast about uh, the fact that I'm, I'm doing a stand-up show about um, a, a serious injury I had earlier this year where I broke my femur. And it's about all the pain, heartache and sort of depression that followed that, but kind of with jokes. And my guest today, uh, nursing a gin and tonic, I'm saying that so she can keep drinking and it's not going to be weird hearing the sound of the glass going up and down, is my wife Jackie. And the reason that I've got her with me is to sort of see what her perspective on the events was. I've already interviewed my sons, Joe and Tom, about it. And I've got Jackie with me. So, Jackie, how are you? All right, thank you. Good. So, uh, what, what, tell me, what, what was your first sort of inkling that something had happened to me? Um, I think I, I remember you getting up and going out for your run as was normal, and as was also normal, I gently turned over and went back to sleep. So I wasn't awake, but I do remember, I think I remember at some point waking up and sort of thinking, I wonder how long you'd been gone for. Because I always did often have a sort of feeling of like, what if something happened and I wouldn't know anything had happened to you? So I would sometimes wake wake a little bit and then you wouldn't know how long it had been since you'd first been awake. And then um, I was aware at one point the phone rang and as I rushed over to pick up the phone, I couldn't hear anyone speaking and I thought, well, that's strange, but put the phone back down and got back into bed because I was in that not fully awake moment. And... And then the phone rang again, say another 10 minutes after that. And that's when I actually heard somebody on the other end of the line who obviously I didn't know who said, I don't want to worry you, but um, I've got your husband here out in the street and I've phoned an ambulance because he's hurt himself. And um, so I went from dozy and half asleep to completely awake within seconds and and I just said, OK, whereabouts are you? And then they said that you were outside the dinghy store up on the, that bit of the road in Whitstable. And I said, I'll be there as quickly as possible. And I thought, well, you're going to be pretty cold, so I wanted to get your big coat. And I put my coat on, my warm coat, so I knew I'd got two warm things on. But I didn't have time to actually go to the toilet or properly get dressed or anything. I just pulled clothes on on top of my pyjamas and didn't... Because I didn't really know how serious it was or what was happening, I knew that I needed to get there quickly. So I grabbed my phone, my keys, and put a coat on and clothes over the top of my pyjamas and then just ran out of the door. So I um, shouted up to the children and I thought I was being quite clear about what was happening because Joe was in the shower but I knew Tom would still be in the woken up but not actually getting up and ready yet moment so I shouted up and said boys um 
dad's fallen over whilst out for his run and someone's having to phone an ambulance so I need to go and get to him and see what we need to do next as soon as you can just put some clothes on and come out and meet me so if we need to get things you can come back and be ferrying stuff between the house and dad and I said he's at the dinghy store um, and heard Tom reply um, but Joe, as usual, in that bathroom having a shower, couldn't hear anything I was saying. So I was now relying upon Tom to have taken in the information, having replied and said he had. So I just then literally ran down the stairs and then ran out of the house. And I wasn't too worried about... Um, I think I put on my... I got a pair of boots that have got like a sort of fur lining to them because it was actually obviously it was that time of year where it was already quite cold and I knew it was wet outside and um so I'd got these boots on but it wasn't snowy on the floor when I went out of the house it was only wet on the floor yeah it wasn't snowy on the floor when I went out no um so it wasn't snowing as I went out of the house at all it was just lightly raining when I went out but I was still a bit worried that if I ran, I might slip over. Absolutely. Because I was wearing boots and they've got this rubber sole. And I thought, now if I slip over, this will be so ironic that I've got you at one place slipped over an ambulance and me halfway to you <laughs> on the floor, not able to. So I was trying to be really careful. And, you know, you're worrying about things, even though you don't know what you're going to face by the time you get to where you're going. Anyway, so I, I rushed out and I was I got to you quite quickly, I think. And um, I saw, I could see sort of you, a shape of you as I was coming up round that corner at the end of Harbour Street. And I could see you were on the floor and I, um, and this lady was still in her pyjamas and a dressing gown. And she got her door open and I could see it was her who'd called. And I, I just came up and um, you go instantly into that, you know, let's put a brave face on what's happening sort of mm. mode and so I came up and I and I I just sort of said what what exactly have you done trying to get attention now or something like that you mm. know making a bit of a joke and it was really disturbing because you were on the floor you were obviously soaking wet but this lovely lady had put her own blankets on you and then she'd also got the pram um, waterproof cover that goes yeah. over a buggy and she'd put that on top of you as well but I could see you were really shaking so you were very very cold as soon as I could see how cold you were when I got there so I got your coat and put that on to the pile and mm. put the hood up round the top of your head as well to try and sort of keep a bit of the heat in you mm. and I sort of said do you, do you think you're, you really shouldn't move but I could see you were lying in probably about two inches of water <laughs> So where, where you were lying literally was the only bit where water was accumulating on the pavement. <laughs> you were in an actual puddle. <laughs> I was, I and know. And as I arrived and was looking and thinking, oh my God, he's so cold, and asking this lady whether you'd, um, the ambulance, you know, where the ambulance was, by that point there'd already been about 15 minutes, you know, fast as I am, I'm not that fast, so I think probably 15 minutes from when she'd said she'd found an ambulance. And she said... They're not here yet. And I thought, well, this isn't really... I don't think they really understand the nature of what's happening. So I phoned again and said, um, I need an ambulance and gave the position. And the lady said, oh, we've had a report of this already and ambulance is on the way. And I said, well, 
it might be on the way, but it hasn't arrived yet. And I'm really concerned because um, he's very cold. And they said, we've got a first responder coming, um, but an ambulance is on its way. But actually, and, you know, I'm jumping about now in the story, as you do, but actually an ambulance didn't get to you for over 45 minutes. So you were on that floor in that cold for that much time before the first responder even got to you. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think I was... uh, uh, You'd gone past the point of shivering by the time they got to you. By the time they arrived, and they only could carry pain relief, they couldn't move you, they couldn't do anything to you other than give you Entonox, so you were given gas and air. Yeah. Um, And they put those silver foil things over Mm. you as well to try and sort of keep you warmer. But it was quite obvious they were concerned that your core temperature was now very, very low. And you and I both know there's not much meat on you. (laughs) So lying in cold water, no matter what we were putting on top of you. And as they arrived, that's when the big... And it wasn't just delicate, pretty snow. It was huge, gorgeous snowflakes started Mm. falling. And it was just like someone was saying, "What what could now be worse for this person who's very, very cold... And it was then large amounts of snow started to fall at that point. So that's when it was snowy. It was just, you know, after you'd been on the floor for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think I was on the pavement for at least an hour and ten minutes before the ambulance picked me up. You absolutely were, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you had the gas and air and you were having little sips of water and the lady had very, very sweetly given you some paracetamol, which was intensely sweet, but actually also really hiccuped the pain relief that you could be given because it meant that there was something on board and they couldn't give you it liquid. So they could have given you liquid paracetamol and liquid morphine, so you could only have the morphine at that point because they couldn't use the paracetamol because you'd had it orally, which, of course, wasn't going to be as fast or effective. Yeah. Nothing wrong with what she did, because that lady was being, you know, she was really reacting brilliantly in a very critical situation. Of course, meanwhile, I (laughs) I then was wondering where the children were. So I phoned the house to say, is is anyone coming? Because I was thinking then we could try and get more things to you, some blankets and stuff. I think Joe answered. No, I don't think he did. I don't think anyone answered. So I thought, oh, they're on their way. And then again, still nobody came. So I phoned Tom and said, where are you? And he'd gone to the wrong and place. And he'd gone to the complete opposite end of Whitstable. <laughs> he'd gone to the Windy Corner stores or something. Yeah. Which is just at the opposite end of the yeah. seafront. So then he had to run the entire span of the, the seafront in Whitstable to get down to us. So by the time he got to us, he was having a hypo. So then not only had I got you on the floor with an ambulance not coming, unable to move and making sounds like a very injured animal, amongst telling me to organise information for people who needed stuff for you for that day. So as soon as I got there, you were telling me, such and such a person needs a reference off my computer. I've got a PhD supervision. You're going to need to get that rearranged. You were instantly telling me things I needed to communicate with work. Um, and that was almost one of the first things I did was let someone at work know that you'd fallen on the floor, which I think shows where your priorities were, even <laughs> lying on the floor with a broken femur. Um, so Tom came and then I was worried because Tom was hypo. He'd obviously not had any breakfast. Uh, he got his BG kit but and he'd got some hypo treatment, but not a lot. So then I had to say, Tom, you need to go home so you can have some food because the hypo will keep happening after running along the seafront. 
And so Joe then was coming toward us so Tom could go home. So it was like dealing with this relay of medical but Tom, but need. What I hadn't remembered was that Tom was there when I was actually lifted into the ambulance because he said he, he described the noise that I made. Well, so, that's, that must coincide with when he got to us then and I'd got people dealing with you and yeah. I'd got Tom having a hypo. Because I remember having to say to somebody... Um, excuse me just a moment, I need to deal with this hypo first mm. before I can then... For, for the benefit of listeners, uh, hypo is uh, Tom's diabetic, so he was having a hypoglycemic incident, which mm. means he had low blood sugars, which is quite dangerous. You have to have um, something sugary. It's, pretty, it's particularly dangerous when you haven't eaten since the night yeah. before. You're, you've run along the seafront, so you've used energy. Yeah. And you're just aware that as somebody who knows what you need to do when you're having a hypo, which is put energy into your body, that um, you've got no access to anything yeah. more than what they've got in their pocket. And I only had my keys and a phone. I'm, I'm just aware that uh, this could turn into an eight-hour podcast. So just I, don't, to... I don't think I've had much of an opportunity to offload. <laughs> so so uh, <laughs> now... Uh, I am right, aren't I, that in the ambulance they were showing us pictures of a dog on the iPhone. Yeah, I don't think... Also, it'll be hard for you to remember the time frame, but yeah. also when they put you into the ambulance, having waited this long for an ambulance to come, yeah. the person driving the ambulance was constantly getting calls to tell him to leave you and go somewhere else and deal with another incident. Right. So they were really stressed that they were having to that they that whomever was in charge of assigning ambulances wasn't aware or wouldn't become aware no matter what they said of how serious your situation was mm. so you we, it was taking a while to raise your temperature mm. so we had to get all the wet stuff off you but because of how much pain you were in we couldn't get the wet blankets from underneath you they were still there mm. when they put you into the ambulance so they cut the wet clothes off and wrapped they cut, you. They cut the wet clothes off in the ambulance. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So you were on the wet blankets, yeah. but they cut the wet clothes off and wrapped you in those silver yeah. foil things you get when you've run a marathon. Yeah. But they couldn't get the wet blankets from underneath you, so they had to ramp up the heat in the ambulance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and whilst we were waiting for you to stabilise a bit more, giving you um, morphine into your, mm. you know, into your vein and all that sort of stuff, you were getting high in the ambulance... Yeah. And you were still using gas and air as well at that point. Yeah. So they were trying to trying to get you a bit more stable in your position on the you know inside so that they could then travel. Um and Joe came back to the ambulance with a bag full of dry clothes for you which he promptly dropped just as he was opening the door in the ambulance to pass them to me. So I had half wet dirty clothes by the time we got in the ambulance. <laughs> To put on you when you got there. And he was outside the ambulance, wasn't he? Yeah, he, and he uh... phoned and said, I'm outside the ambulance, <laughs> but I don't know how to get you to open the door. So I had to open... Obviously then it was hilarious. So that's when they were showing you pictures of their dog and things whilst we were waiting for you mm. to be in less pain so you could move. So um, the... I mean, what was the... What was the the experience of going into hospital 
like for you because I mean I was obviously literally out of it for, well you weren't actually literally out of it what's really interesting well, no, what I you... mean is that, that but for, for part of it I was because I was being operated on well in that bit yes but that wasn't the going into hospital we'd been mm. in hospital for quite a while but yeah, before yeah, yeah. you got the operation done Talk what was which, really what was I wearing because because they you know after they got me to hospital we went into like a curtained off thing yeah was presumably I was just under the silver hospital, blankets. No, hospital gown. As soon as we... That on? When you were in the first, the triage area, the oh, emergency yeah. area, that's when they... Um, I just put all your stuff in the bin and rescued your keys and your iPod. Yeah. Um, and there was no point trying to rescue anything else, including your brilliant Wesley Willis T-shirt. That's yeah. when that disappeared. Yeah. Um, everything just went into the bin because it was disgusting and yeah. all the blankets which belonged to that lovely lady went in the bin no i had i put oh, them to one side and which meant i was not only carrying i was in my pajamas still i still hadn't been to the toilet at any point i hadn't eaten hadn't drunk mm. anything hadn't cleaned my teeth nothing now i know that's nothing compared to someone who's lying on a bed broken no, with a broken nice, femur but that went on till nearly 10 o'clock at night before yeah. I was at a point where I could do anything. Wasn't there a thing that when I was in the operating theatre, you were just in a cold, unheated corridor for yeah. two hours? I couldn't be in a ward because you weren't actually signed into anywhere. There was no family waiting area and there was no cafeteria because everything was closed by that point. What was the worst thing about coming to visit me in hospital? Seeing you... It's horrible. Joe, Joe, Joe's description was that when he came in to see me, that I was underperforming. <laughs> you were, you were seriously underperforming. I tell you what, it actually was, is you were, you were doing what I suspect many people will do, which is you were trying to fit into the atmosphere you were party to, yeah. and you were wanting to be, you wanted being good to you to be as easy as possible for the people around you and your focus was entirely on everybody else and not us as a family so having gone into the hospital with you and that was a very different experience to having because we've done hospital we've done emergency hospital mm. twice very serious issues in hospital as parents and as parents you are constantly talked to and constantly given information about what's happening to your children. Mm. As a partner, you disappear. Mm. You have n nobody wants to talk to you. Nobody wants your opinion or your permission. If you're speaking, they're directing everything at you. Now, I was aware you were highly acting very different to your normal mm. self because you were on morphine, and I was concerned that they weren't realising that you weren't being as compass mentis as you may normally be. So I was feeling very aware that I wanted you to be telling them the right things about what had happened to you, but nobody really wanted me to tell them anything. And there would literally be moments where you would be removed from where I was with no one acknowledging that I needed to follow you. And I'd go, do I need to come with you now? And I would literally just have to trail behind picking everything up each mm. time and not knowing where I was going to be. So that thing in the corridor... That was several hours of having no idea what was actually mm. happening and not having a place to be or knowing if anyone knew that I was there or would mm. be given any information. And I'm, I don't know what they can do about that other than just not what they did. Mm. That was really, That was the hardest bit, I think. But then the other hard bit is seeing you chameleon-like fitting into a geriatric ward. <laughs> That was really terrifying because you did. You seemed twenty years older every time I came and saw you. Mm. 
I mean, I was quite, kind of really conscious of trying to hold on to my identity, and that's why I was talking to people in the ward, like why I learnt everybody's name. Because yeah. the other blokes didn't make a huge effort to mm. talk at first. I mean, it was mm. a, probably at least a day before I started mm. making contact with the other patients. Um, but it's like I found that if people knew my name, that it was really mm. better. Well, do you know another really interesting thing, I think, which you may not remember at all, but your Nottingham accent was coming out more and more when you were in hospital. Well, Lincolnshire. Your Lincolnshire yeah, accent, I wasn't yeah. aware of that, no. So the voice you do as a comedy voice <laughs> was actually... You were sounding more like your own mm. comedy version of yourself, if you see what I mean. Mm. So it had little moments of being really disturbing like yeah. that where you'd think, ooh, this well, could be really, really bad. It's really interesting because when I talked to Tom about when they came to visit, he was saying that I, you know, I wasn't talking much and things no. like that. But what's really strange is my memory of it is the opposite, is that when the boys came, I was trying to make... It was hard for me to try and make conversation, but well, I was trying to make I conversation, wonder... but they were just giving monosyllabic answers. Well, I mean, I th I'm sure that's partly their own perception because I think... I think it's such a disturbing thing for a young person to see your parents suddenly mm. in a very different... Yeah. You know, you rely upon your parent to be invincible. So it's a quite a shock to sort of realise they're just human, isn't mm. it? Um, but I, I think maybe that also might be your own perception, your perception too, that you were talking a lot, but actually... No, I wasn't talking a lot, but I was initiating most of the that, conversations. But that's, the, that's what I mean, really. For you, in that context, you felt like you were working hard at conversation, mm. but actually for our normal, yeah. you weren't at all. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't flowing like it normally would. And yeah. we are a family who talk to each other. Yeah. You know? So I wanted to check something. You know when uh, you had to take back all the equipment on... Because it was difficult for you to get there because you were having to get there on public transport, which was... Uh, so I was, I was going to work, I was coming home from work on a bus, which isn't necessarily, let's say, timed strictly to a timetable. <laughs> yeah. And uh, occasionally an entire bus would disappear and, and then no one would know where it had gone to or even that it hadn't come. Yeah. So I could get home, it would, it would take about 30 minutes to get home on the bus, but that included potentially 20 minutes of waiting for the bus in the first instance. Mm. And I get in, have enough time to put down my work stuff, pick up what I needed to take for you and go straight to the train station, get a train out to Margate. So not Margate, sorry, Ramsgate. So you'd go past where you think you need to go to to get to the hospital. So that would take about 40, 45 minutes. And then you'd have to get on a bus, which would come from outside and go round a loop, a large loop of Thanet to get to the, the hospital. Mm. Which Still, then... it's always good to get it. <laughs> to look at Thanet. Well, I have to tell you, and, you know, I mean this is ap in absolutely no way a rude comment about the area, but I think I was probably on, let's put it this way, I was taking a bus late in the evening at a point where people were probably only using it to get from one place where they might be drinking to another place where they may have a friend concussed. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm not saying that we saw the best side of Thanet on that bus journey. Well, well, something funny happened, didn't it? That you had to take the you had to take the equipment that I would need to go. I home. had to bring home a Zimmer frame and a crutch. Is it one crutch or two crutches? I think it was. A Zimmer frame and one crutch I had to carry home. 
Yeah. I don't know why it would have only been one crotch, though, but it was. Was it two Zimmer frames? Oh, might it have been? T- yeah, yeah, it was two Zimmer frames and a crutch. <laughs> two, two Zimmer frames and a crutch. Yeah. And somebody saw you doing Well, that. I, I was obviously using the bus on this circular bus mm. service where they were obviously used to people being, let's say, quite delicate or mm. damaged when they were getting on and off mm. of it. And I was standing holding two Zimmer frames and this crutch and looking probably... I mean, I remember one night being so tired, I just, I just couldn't... I couldn't get my head round what I was doing or mm. I couldn't bring any energy up to try and be entertaining or useful or anything. I was just on total empty, mm. total, total empty. And um, I must have looked like someone who needed to be using the Zimmer frame. <laughs> so when the bus pulled up and I lifted them up to carry them on rather than use them to help me on, the woman said to me, um, uh, I, the woman said to me, I thought you needed them, you poor cow. <laughs> so it was funny, but it was—it's it, that sort of way of trying to be, trying to be offering some kindness, but saying it in such a way that could be very insulting yeah. as well at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, so uh, when I when I got home, it was I. What I what I remember was when I got home. It was actually really difficult being home, because. Uh, I, I, I remember sitting there on the chair that you bought for me to sit on um, and putting my hood up and just staring at my phone as I had done to try and block out a lot of what was going on in hospital because... That transition was really difficult for yeah. us, I think, watching you do that. And we were very aware of it. Mm. You had gone into your own small world mm. with your own routines and your own little patterns. And this had only been in a matter of days. Mm. But you were, it was very difficult to get you into your home mode. Mm. It didn't take a huge amount of time. And the moment when I knew that it was going to be okay Mm. and that you weren't going to be... Your leg, I was less worried about. Mm. I was much more worried about your mental state. Mm. Because you were very, you were not behaving like you. You were behaving like a patient. Mm. And a patient I didn't really know, Mm. you know. Um, was uh, the moment that changed was when you started to demand that you were doing things around the kitchen mm. and you insisted upon being propped up so you could help chop vegetables and mm. cook the dinner. And even though it was painful, you know, like watching a toddler use scissors. <laughs> it's very painful to watch <laughs> you doing it, but it was the most important thing that you started doing things that were not your normal jobs, as it yeah. were. Yeah. But it was scary watching someone in that, precarious moment between are you going to get back to being yourself or is this going to make things really really different so what was the worst thing about the experience for you from your point of view probably the the mistake of trying to keep working in the first instance whilst you were at hospital when I was having to do all that travel and and be at work and doing my job which is perhaps one of the jobs it isn't something good that you can manage other people's need when you're running on empty and um it was very very sensible when that just all stopped and I just took a week off which work were brilliant about I I think if that that moment before I took that week off was the worst bit for me 
I remember there was one time you came to see me in hospital and I think I told you to go home or I said don't you know you you shouldn't come every night because mm. and then one night the boys came instead that and made a big difference because I, I, I just couldn't bear to see you it was horrible to see you so low actually it was just being so tired because I think I'd had I had almost 24 hours awake on that first day when that happened to you so, so what was the funniest thing about my behavior after I got home because there was quite a lot of fun poking from you and the boys Am I really allowed to say what the funniest thing yeah. is? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. I think it was the piss pots. <laughs> oh, charming. <laughs> I, I had to have... I, had to have, I don't know, it's not called bedpans, is it, when it's a bottle? A piss bottle to piss in at night, basically. Yeah, that was the funniest thing. That wasn't funny for me. It wasn't funny, but it was funny because it was so completely horrible. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't nice having to use them either at all. In but fact, the the, fun, the actual funniest thing, the thing I found it easiest to laugh at, was your um, breaking down emotionally all the time. Oh, I know that sounds so cruel that we found that so yeah, funny. Basically, I was crying the whole time, and every time I did, they ripped the shit out. But of it me. wasn't. You weren't crying the whole time. That's not true. I was crying a lot. You though. cried a lot, but it was. It wasn't the whole time. If it was the whole time, I would have just been slapping you. But it was actually. Hold on. It was, so wait. <laughs> so well, if I just... cry a bit, you can take the piss. <laughs> if I cry a lot, you slap me. Well, I should try and get you out of it. You have a caring job. You look after vulnerable people. Is that what you do? Leave your work at the door. Don't bring it home with you. That's what people say. But <laughs> I, I think the thing was that made it so funny is it would be at the most bizarre moments that you'd feel like the emotion overwhelm you of how loved you were. So it would be, for instance, when you were peeling an onion, you would just go, I mean, that sounds stupid because people do cry when they're doing that. But it was the act of cutting up fruit or something and you'd go, I can't believe I'm actually at home. Or you'd be going up the stairs and you'd just stop halfway and I'd just see your shoulders shaking. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't... It was, sometimes it was sort of tears of gratitude. Sometimes it was sort of... Sort of, I don't know, free-floating despair. You know, it was kind of... Yeah. I just felt overwhelmed with the need to cry. But then I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and I think we laughed because we knew you needed to do it. Yeah. I don't think we would have been laughing if we'd thought that you were vulnerable in any way. Yeah. It was good to see you crying because you had been behaving so differently. Mm. It was almost like you were... You had become who you needed to be to cope with what you were doing. Mm. And you sh you needed to not be coping to become who you actually are again. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I do. And um, the other really funny thing, but this would be a very personal thing that was funny, is the desire you had for me to take photos of you all the time. <laughs> you just wanted to document it all. Yeah. You wanted to keep showing everybody what you were dealing with and what you were doing, which I suppose is ironic, given that's why you're interviewing me now as well. It so is. still and... that desire to show everybody. Well, the whole project, in a sense, is about documentation because one of the things I did when I got home from hospital was, in my notebook, started just writing notes about what had happened and drawing pictures and things. And it was really from that that I started thinking about doing a show at some mm. point, I just sort of went, oh, there's something here. Mm. And then, you know, one of the reasons I do this podcast is because I think it's interesting. Mostly, you, you, OK, this isn't... I'm not a professional comedian. This is not a kind of big tour or something. It's just one night. But, you know, I, I am building a... What, what will be probably at least an hour of stand-up from nothing. And one of the things about that is that normally, you know, you just do it. 
and and it just disappears. And you like last time I was at one of these shows, I can't really remember a lot about the process. I remember bits about it actually, but there are whole bits of the process I don't really remember. Um, and so it's quite interesting talking about first of all how a comedy show could document your life, and secondly how you could document the process of changing a personal experience into a stand-up comedy show, because it's it's. It's, well, it's an odd thing to do, really. Well, it's going to be very interesting because I I know there was quite a long period where you were not laughing. Yeah. You were not seeing any comedy in your situation. Mm. And that that was a big thing we missed because we are a family who laugh quite a bit. Well, and you were not trying to make us laugh about your own situation, which I suspect is why we were trying to make... We were laughing at you a little bit, perhaps, more well, often. That's your phone. Oh, just, 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 we're nearly done here. Um, so, so yeah. I mean, I think I think that's probably because you know, laughter requires detachment. Really, you have mm. to have some. I'm not saying that Bergson had this theory that you know you can't laugh while you're feeling, but I don't think that's necessarily true. But I think you need. I think you can be because there's that thing, isn't there, where you're feeling something, mm. but there's another bit of you that's aware mm. on another level, mm. and I think that I probably lost that. You know, that, mm. that I couldn't. It's really hard to detach. Mm. emotionally when you're feeling detached from your leg because your leg feels alien when it doesn't work when it's broken well also i think taking a lot of more i mean bizarrely the idea of taking a drug to make you make you more creative Mm. you were not functioning in a way at all that would have Mm. allowed you to express yourself more because you were taking morphine it did the detaching thing i would have thought Mm. so I, i don't quite know how an opiate is meant to make you more creative because it wasn't doing that for you at all. No, it wasn't, no. I'm no Iggy Pop. No, I don't think you could ever be a rock star. It didn't work for you, you know, hard drugs. Oh, it worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> not, not necessarily in that way. Um, thanks, Jackie. That's going to be the end of the episode. Can you think of it? I've, I've had really crap, like, uh, catchphrases trying to end the episode, but I dropped that several episodes ago because it's rubbish. Tom, when he did his interview, uh, did a little um, trill on his uh, um, xylophone. Uh, Can you think of a a final thought for this episode of the podcast? Um, Don't break your femur. That'll do it.